You know, I've already commented on the friendship that's slowly been growing between Julian and Bashir. Or, excuse me. <laughs> between J Bashir and O'Brien. This is when the writers were like, you know what? Those two actors had some good stuff together. Why don't we keep pushing them towards each other? And it's one of those things that I don't have a good reason why it works, but it makes perfect sense that it works. To me, the idea of the the brilliant medical, you know, the doctor who has lived an insular experience, who isn't doesn't have a lot of real life experience or actual um, on the job training or anything like that, and the guy who has basically nothing but on the job training, who has literally never sought career promotion or a, an actual uh, career track, even though he could have. He's a non-commissioned officer, remember. So he could have actually joined the career, uh, the, the officer corps if he wanted to. I guarantee you he would have qualified. But he never did. And he's fought in a war. And he's a brilliant adaptational engineer. It just kind of fits. It's it's like I was talking about the other day. I forget what it was on TNG or DS9 episode, forgive me. About how, you know, people who exactly match each other tend to bounce off each other. But people who don't quite match can nevertheless find those places where they connect like that. You know, Tetrising together. It, it just kind of flows naturally. And of course, both actors have amazing chemistry together. Now, this episode actually started off in a couple of different ways. And it was worked and then reworked and then reworked again. Uh, until we get to the format we have here. This is most obvious in a couple of scenes, which basically are just kind of like, huh? And in the fact that this episode basically spends no time on the concept. This is an episode about O'Brien and and uh, Bashir. <laughs> Making sure I say the right words this time. And it's an episode about some of the characters' reactions to them. But ultimately, there's only really four characters that really get a proper examination here. Bashir, O'Brien, Dax, and Quark. That's it. Everyone else is just kind of there, and the actual events of the episode are practically non-existent. As Cisco pointed out, these two races, who are so irrelevant I didn't bother to remember their names on purpose, because we'll never hear from them again, just declared war on the Federation twice. Now, I know, I know, this is the Federation, and, you know, they're not exactly big on going to war with things, but I'm sorry, as a writer, I would look at this like, I'm s what? You just willingly and knowfully tried to commit first-degree premeditated murder on two Starfleet officers who were completely innocent of anything to satisfy your treaty or your insanity. I'm actually being generous when I say it's their treaty. And then you try to murder a commanding officer who was trying to take care of those and rescue those people, as well as the science officer with them, who are also innocent of everything. <laughs> I mean, that is straight up war declaration right there. That's that's not a definable. That's not a well. Let's say, no, 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 no. That should be galaxy class ships showing up in orbit, kind of a situation. And don't tell me these people can fight against the feds. So, what the hell? But it's never mentioned again. It's cool. It's cool. We got our we got our people back. No harm, no foul. I'm not saying it's out of character. I'm just saying it bugs the crap out of me. You know what I mean? I would have loved to see the Federation, who plays at politics, right? I mean, they may not be big on acting like most other large organizations, and that's fine. But they do play at politics. I would have loved to see this have some kind of political fallout or ramifications. This is DS9, for God's sakes. 
This isn't something happening over in the Gamma Quadrant. It's happening here in the, uh, I guess, Alpha Quadrant. <sighs> Whatever. Uh, and also, actually, while we're on the subject, so I mentioned how I'm being generous to these people. It sounds to me, if I'm to be generous, like it was literally a stipulation of their treaty that all knowledge of these bioweapons is erased. That's already kind of ridiculous. But it says a lot about how tenuous the peace is between the two sides, which makes sense. Um, it also says a lot about how little trust there is on both sides, which makes sense, and how willing they are to go to extremes, which makes sense. That being said, I do wish they hadn't been at centuries of war. The thing is, I was paying attention, and they didn't give the relevant information. They just, they've been at war for centuries. It took, like, 10-plus years to build this bioweapon, and then it took additional time, plus the week, to finally get rid of the weapon after the treaty. Okay. We also know a lot of populations were completely wiped out by this bioweapon. Okay. What we don't know is a time scale for how these things came to be. We're just left to decide for, for ourselves. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but it gets back to my earlier point. This isn't about the two irrelevant races. This is why I refuse to memorize their names. Because they don't matter. They are literally Threat of the Week. And what is Threat of the Week if not completely irrelevant? I'm, I'm sorry. I was literally just talking about this uh, in the Star Trek channel in my Discord. Not uh, I shouldn't call it my Discord. Our Discord. Uh, just a few days ago. Threat of the Week... I've always been against the threat of the week concept. It can and has been done to good effect. It, it, that This is true. And good episodes have threat of the weeks in them. I wouldn't even say this is a good episode. But the threat of the week itself is really just an excuse. And that's, that's part of what I don't like about it. There's actually a lot of things I don't like about it. I've talked about so many of them before. I'm not going to go over that. The biggest point here for this episode is the excuse. We need to put Bashir and O'Brien together. Here's the excuse. Details don't matter. Specifics don't matter. Why they're fighting doesn't matter. Their willingness to go to war with Federation doesn't matter. How long they've been at war doesn't actually matter. How long they were devastated by these weapons doesn't matter. None of the details matter. All we know, and we only really see three significant NPCs, or I mean guest stars, sorry. <laughs> three significant guest stars from the two races. The one who dies right at the beginning, the one from one side, and the one from the other side, in order to showcase that it's a joint effort. And that's it. There's like even a half-arsed attempt in order to make it so that it's some kind of a mystery, like, oh my god, the one side's breaking the treaty. And then no effort or attention is paid to that at all, and then they still act like it should be a reveal when both sides are in on this, and they explain their reasoning. It's like... It's, it's not even a reveal because it's like you're walking th down... It's like you're telling a story about someone who's walking down Disneyland and all of a sudden someone jumps out and says, Aha! It was the butler! And everyone just turns... I'm sorry, what? The butler! About three blocks from here, there was this incident where this guy stole the teacup and, and we were all trying to figure out what it was, but it was actually the butler! Okay, why do we care? You know, <laughs> I'm willing to give this le episode leeway. Because it is a good episode. Good. Not great. But it really does feel like just a completely half-weirdly-done excuse thing. There's so many other ways they could have accomplished getting from point A to point B. Now, it's also worth noting that this is probably a symptom of the rewrite and the re-rewrite I mentioned earlier. Because one of the original points was this was going to be a chase sequence. A big chase episode where it's all about O'Brien and Bashir bonding as they try to escape them. But then they looked at their budget and they said, Whoa, whoa, we can't afford that. Um, keep it in one small set that's cheap. 
Uh, okay. So he wrote a chase episode that takes place in one set. And at that point, it's just the character dynamic and everything else is just kind of the excuse. Anywho. <clears throat> so let's get on to the episode proper. I suppose another day staying here won't kill me. I do like how the the alien bees, we're going to call them the alien bees, show up. As opposed to alien A's. I'm not saying that they're bzzz. So the alien bees show up, they're like, we're going to kill everyone. And for some reason it never occurred to them that they might have issues fighting a two trained Starfleet personnel. Like their own scientists? Yeah, sure, that's a joke. I, I doubt they've done a push-up in their life, but... Part of Starfleet training is going through military and combat exercises and protocols. We know this as of now. That's been true for a long time. Also, O'Brien is literally a war veteran. And that actually comes up later in the episode. Now, they might not have known that, but you'd still think they would, if, since they're so you know, determined to make this happen, like, why didn't they just blow up the ship? Or the station or whatever that they're on? Why not just go... You are so determined to make sure this stuff is destroyed forever that you're willing to effectively risk war against the most powerful force, uh, arguably in the setting, but for the most part, definitely the most powerful political and military and economic force within two quadrants. Why not just blow up your own station? Uh, right, excuse. Sorry. So, O'Brien gets them out. He, I mentioned the war experience. I'm just going to... Like, I have so little to say about some of the events of this episode. Very few notes here. I do like and hate his experience with the war coming in later. His ability to, to help Bashir keep watch, his technical expertise, and of course, and this is most important, his knowledge of trapped supplies, which is a thing that's happened in real life far too many times. Uh, it actually reminds me... <laughs> sorry. It actually reminds me of a Space of Bum Beyond episode where they would put mines on injured soldiers, which is messed up. <laughs> but apparently the Cardis did that. Cardassians, go figure. Um, so they decide to stay put. Now, they make a good excuse for it. Let me give credit to the re-rewrite, which was done by uh, Michael Piller, I want to say, did the re-rewrite, where they're like, okay, they're expecting us to stay on the move. We're just going to hunker up right here. We're not going to give out any signals, any noise, any anything until we get this thing, this, this actual comm system working. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense. So credit on that point. Bashir, I love the sequence of events that follows between Bashir and O'Brien. Because, again, that is really the meat of the episode. Bashir obviously has a great deal of respect for O'Brien. And O'Brien obviously can't stand Bashir, at least as of this point in time. And O'Brien's just trying to get to work. He also doesn't feel good, and he's irritable. He was irritable because he already wanted to go home. He already didn't like staying here. He didn't care for the food, right? There's a lot. There's, there's some actual subtleties in the dialogue where it's mentioned there's a lot of little things. It's not like he was on Kronos dealing with, you know, e eating gravel for a week. It wasn't bad. It was just frustrating. So here we have an O'Brien who's been dealing with a frustrating circumstance for a week because he's a professional and he does his goddamn job. And then he, he's like, okay, what? Maybe I, maybe I should do this or maybe I should go on this drive. Maybe I should, oh, Bashir, please just leave me alone. And Bashir's like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Because Bashir, weirdly enough, is feeling the same frustration for completely different reasons. He was very comfortable here and he loved the challenge, the work of trying to solve this, this medical problem, right? And by all accounts, and O'Brien himself admits this, Bashir pr pretty much pulled the, the weight of the work on the actual 
cure for the the harvesters. I love the way they call that, by the way, the harvesters. I can't I can't hear that and not think about Mass Effect. It's, it's not the first time this month I've thought about Mass Effect in regard to Star Trek. Anyways, <laughs> so he's he's he, this has been great, but that's because he was being engaged and he was being challenged and he was doing work. He was contributing. One of the things I think we can say of proto-Bashir here is that he really likes to be involved. He does not like to be the kind of guy who sits back and says, go do this, and then lets other people do it. No, no, no. There's a reason he picked this freaking frontier. He had his pick, remember? So he's suddenly useless. He's a watchdog. And he's like, maybe I can help, maybe I can do this. Okay, maybe. And O'Brien is like, just shut up, just shut up. Now, so both of them are frustrated for different reasons. Both of them vent a little bit. And then finally, Bashir, almost sheepishly, is like, okay, I'll go over here. I'll do this. What I love, though, is the sequence of events. We're skipping forward a scene or two here. Because Bashir starts off by praising O'Brien. Because O'Brien's great. And Bashir knows that. I mean, O'Brien is a wonderful, adaptable engineer. I've already talked about that. I've said that many times. It's pretty much his strength. He's really good at being good on his feet, thinking good on his feet. So he praises him for that. Then they start talking about women, and then they start talking about careers. And you know what I love about this? It's very natural. As I've said before, Alexander Siddig and the actor who plays O'Brien, both have wonderful chemistry together. Really legitimately awesome chemistry. There's a, a, a tremendously natural friendship, a broship, if you will, between the two. But I mean that with total sincerity and as a positive thing. The word bro gets a little too much negativity for obvious reasons. Um, but th- I mean this one in a good way. You know, they just talk like guys do. Not like men, but like guys. Like they're just the 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 conversation kind of just kind of naturally flows back and forth between the two, and they talk about things that you generally wouldn't talk about with other people. It's it's something. I know this is going to sound like a segue, but Final Fantasy fifteen got some flack for having four guys as its main cast. But the biggest defense that was posited for that by the writers and by the creators of the game was that. Guys will talk with other guys differently than they will other girls. And let's be honest, this is uh, no spoilers, obviously, because some of you might not have played the game. But FF15 really is about those four guys. All the other events are practically irrelevant. It's all about the dynamic, the friendship, the broship between those four characters, right? And so really emphasizing that is what they were going for. And I'm with that. I agree, because that's true. For most cases, in most people. And so there's this just kind of natural guy talk. Like, how many other people do you think Bashir is willing to open up to about that ballerina that he was really madly in love with? Hmm? I wouldn't be surprised if O'Brien is legitimately the first person he's ever opened up to about that incident since that incident was over. Like, I'm sure his parents knew about her. And I'm sure that some of the people around him knew about her at the time. But, you know, from that point to now, I bet he hasn't told a soul. Except for O'Brien. And there's... He starts talking about the marriage thing. And he says, marriage just feels unfair. Now that sounds like a dark comment. And you notice O'Brien's immediately like, I'm sorry, what? But then Bashir's like, well, no, I mean, like, we're, we're a career Starfleet. We're not leaving the job. So they have to worry about us, and we have to worry about them worrying about us. It doesn't feel fair. And 
That's another, it, it, again, that makes perfect sense. That's actually something that they have covered in Star Trek before, both on TNG and on the original series, and in some of the books as well, arguably the movies. You know, it's, it's a common trend. These people are exploratory or military or both, and as a consequence, having any kind of long-term real relationship there always carries a certain weight with it. And the scene that immediately follows this is the one where Cisco goes to tell Keiko, and wonderful praise to her, as always. She's a, she, she does a great job as Keiko. She always does. She's a, it's a small role, but she always nails it, so definite props are involved there. She, you know, and when Cisco shows up, you can just see on her face, this is something she has been prepared for for years. She's probably rehearsed this. She's probably sat in her mind thinking, okay, this is what I'm going to do when they tell me Miles is dead. This is what I'm going to this is how I'm going to react when they tell me Miles is dead. You can't tell me that hasn't been going through her head. She used to be stationed on the frickin' Enterprise, for God's sakes. Or he you know what I mean. So I just feel that um that 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 in the presentation and we get to see the 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 reality it it shows us in person the weight of what Bashir and O'Brien are talking about in the supposed reality. Now I mentioned this because I feel like some of the oh god they're dead scenes back on DS9 are basically padding. We the audience know they're alive, so the only purpose those scenes serve is to examine the characters themselves. But as I mentioned before, they don't really do much of an examination there. There are a couple of exceptions. I mentioned Dax earlier. It is nice to know how much Dax legitimately does care about him. And that will be something that will be relevant in the future. All I'm going to say for now is that not for the first time it's been hinted, this was actually hinted just last episode, that she does have more fondness for him and genuine attraction for him than she likes to let on. The other thing I like, of course, is Quark's thing. Now, this is going to sound weird. Quark only has his one scene, but it is gold. Or latinum. 57th rule of acquisition. Good customers are as rare as latinum. Treasure them. That is a that sounds like a strange statement, but it shows a that Quark really does understand the gravity of the situation, and b really does care. Even if he cares in a Ferengi way, he still legitimately cares, because he's right. That is one of my favorite rules of acquisition, right there. By the way, and it's one I agree with myself. All, all of you guys are effectively my customers. If you were to break this down, I, I call you my viewers or my show or my people, but. You know, the lore walkers, right? You're, you are my customers. I'm here to work for you. That's my job. And it's true. Good customers, truly good customers, regular customers, reliable customers, customers who pay the bill their time, customers who support you, customers who don't make you want to tear your hair out, metaphorically speaking, are very valuable and should always be treasured. That's something I've believed since I was young, since I used to work at a cash register. You know what I mean? So I like that scene. And, of course, good insight into Quark. Then Keiko brings something up. Now, I love this because I have commented just this month about uh, how often, and I've already commented this several times on TNG, about how often someone will act differently and people don't pick up on it. This has actually already come up in DS9 as well. It's a little pet peeve of mine, especially when you know it's a setting like Star Trek where being possessed or being replaced by a shapeshifter or being influenced by an alien device is a thing that not only happens but is semi-common, right? 
So it always bothers me when people don't notice variances in people's behavior, especially when those variances are hugely obvious. So credit to Keiko for noticing the extremely minute variance in, in O'Brien's behavior leading up to the reveal of, aha, this has been faked. And of course, Cisco desperately wants to believe that. What commander wouldn't want to think their men are actually still alive, right? And uh, Dax is like, yeah, no, let, let's do this. Let's, let's freaking get this on. Because again, as I mentioned earlier, she does legitimately care. She hides it, but, you know. Then they decide to flip that. Now, it's a good line to end the episode on. It's a great last gag. You do? And I admit I laughed. But that also is... <laughs> and I also admit that long-term couples tend to actually not know as much about each other. There's, there's actually studies that have been done about this. They tend to, to basically get used to the other person so they don't really pay as much attention anymore. So that makes sense, too. But it frustrates me that for the for once, people have noticed there's very minor changes in someone's behavior so that they can tell they're someone different, and they were completely wrong, but they were also completely right, because there actually was... Really? Really, episode? Come on. So... I don't have much else to say. I, I mean, there's more good stuff. There's this great bit where O'Brien, who is dying, flat out says, you know, you, you keep talking about the adventure, you keep talking about it, but marriage is the greatest adventure. Now, that sounds like a cliche, but there's a sincerity with the way he presents that information. It's like, listen, having to do all this stuff together, having to make it all work, all the, all the negatives and all the positives and all the, the hard, serious work that a long-term relationship is, is an adventure. I myself believe that concept. And the idea that... It's okay, because at the end of the day, after all this crap and all these barbs and all this mud that you're slogging through, well, you're doing it together. You're doing it because you love each other. You're doing it because you both want to work to make this work long term. It's one of the reasons I praise the Keiko and O'Brien relationship, because it is very real. So then the villains show up. Oh my god, gasp, it was the butler. And um, there's this one actually really amusing bit because it's so common in fiction for the villains to really take their time in killing someone or defeating someone or whatever, and that allows the good guys to escape. Now, that's what happens here, but for what might be the first time that I can think of off the top of my head, it makes sense because the villains aren't here to, well, <laughs> then I will poison the water puppy supply. You know, no. Instead, it's poisoning the water supply and the puppy supply. Instead, they're like, okay, well, it's an unfortunate reality that we do have to kill you. And then O'Brien says, hang on, I want to stand on my feet. Okay, yeah, let them up. You know, they're trying to be civil about murdering them here. And then, oh God, they get away. Holy crap. Then we must kill you. Oh, okay. The runabout thing. And then what happens is one of the weirdest scenes in the whole episode. And it's probably the scene that actively aggravates me the most of the entire thing. We've, we see the daring escape from the perspective of the villains, which is good. We, the audience, can already know what's going on because Dax and Cisco have already mentioned the blind spot in the censors. So all you have to do is have the villains show the ship being destroyed, and they shake their heads sadly. All right, go find the other runabout. What, it's missing? But we saw them destroyed. And then you just have to cut it off right there. Or another way, which I'll talk about in a moment. Instead, they then have to very painstakingly, laboriously elaborate on exactly what just happened. The exposition is clunky as hell. It's like, oh, they must have done this exact thing. And then they must have done this exact thing. It's like, okay, no, guys, we're not stupid. We get it. It's not even that long. It's just weird. But then what happens after that is even weirder. 
The one race guy, race B, says, but we saw them destroyed. And he says that in a specific tone. And then race A woman says, did we? Now, that line, did we, bothers me. Because it's really obvious that they escaped. So that line serves no purpose except to undermine the first line, which is, we saw them die. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, hang on, Laura. Doesn't the first line mean he's an idiot? No, the first line means he's a politician. Sorry for being redundant. Because, remember, the stipulations of the treaty were absolutely under no circumstances did anyone survive this. We saw them die. You saw it right there on the view screen. So, yeah. Treaty met. That's the direction, that's the other direction they could have taken this. Like, alright, hang on. This is our way out. We've destroyed them, and now they're no longer a threat to the treaty. So now we can go forward with the peace process. Now, even that, of course, doesn't work, because regardless of whether or not the Federation is willing to wage war on what is a, a dinky little power, um, I'm not sure they're going to stay completely silent about the attempted first-degree premeditated murder of four of their officers and the destruction of one of their runabouts. Um, so that would be funny. Yes, the treaty has been met. Oh, what's... Uh, sir, we're getting a message from Starfleet. Huh? Y you know, whatever. Maybe they all killed each other, and that's why we never hear from them again. I don't know. I actually have nothing else to add to this episode. It was enjoyable to sit through. It was enjoyable to go through. Uh, I do hope you guys will be joining me next week for more DS9. I have one last note here. So as I've been going through TNG Season 2, uh, it's been very bipolar. There's been really great episodes, good episodes, and then really actively bad episodes. And it's just doing this in quality throughout Season 2. DS9 has been doing something that's either worse or better, depending on your perspective. Most of the episodes have been enjoyable, but most of them has all, have also not been noteworthy. There's been nothing I have hated in Season 2 of DS9, but there's also been nothing I've really been like, yeah, it's the best thing ever. None of it's really sticking out in my mind. I'm having trouble even remembering some of the Season 2 episodes we've ever gone through. In fact, so when I sat down to look at the Season 2 stuff, I, I'm looking down the list like, I don't recognize any of the... You know, I recognize that one. Paradise. We're getting there. And then I recognize you know, the last like three episodes of the season, and that's it. Because they're not very memorable. Whether that's good or bad is up to you. It's just been weird going through DS9. But I thank you for joining me, and I hope to see you guys next week.